The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Tracy Slater, author of The Good Shufu, Finding Love, Self, and Home on the Far Side of the World. Uh, this is a story of the life least expected, messy, overwhelming, and deeply enriching in its complications. Uh, Tracy is a, uh, this is her first book, but she is no stranger to the literary world. She is the founder of Four Stories, a global series series in Boston, Osaka, and Tokyo. Uh, she has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Boston Magazine, the Chronicle Review, and the New York Times Motherload blog. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Tracy. Hi. Nice to be with you. Thanks, Catherine. Okay. So this is your memoir, obviously, that is... Uh, been described as engaging and insightful, um, and uh, also I think one of, I had read that one of the testimonials for your book said Tracy Slater's charming The Good Shufu reminded me of Eat, Pray, Love, rewritten by Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah, so that's quite a compliment. So, all right, so tell us your story. Ph.D. in Boston, you decide to go where? To Japan uh, to teach English to Japanese businessmen. Is that how the story starts out? Yeah, I am a fiercely independent American academic uh, living in Boston and deeply committed to staying in Boston my entire life and to staying a fiercely independent academic. Um, and um, I am actually uh, have a job teaching writing to American MBA students. Um, and the university where I teach decides the, to send me over to Asia um, to teach in an Asian executive MBA program for the summer um, as a kind of conversation coach with the idea that because I teach American business people uh, how to write, that I may be able to kind of coach these Asian executive businessmen into communicating like native English speakers. Um, the job was a bit of a disaster. I, I completely was not, tr- uh, you know, qualified. If anybody um, knows anything about the field of ESL, which I didn't at the time, uh, anything about the field of English as a second language, um, you really have to know what you're doing to actually teach language. And I, my background was as a writer, and a, I had a PhD in English and American literature. Um, so that, you know, not qualified at all to teach language. Um, teaching language and literature are really different things, I learned. The university sends me over, and I uh, am a, a terrible at the job, but I do meet and fall madly in love with one of the students on the program um, and uh, end up sort of in the life I least expected, uh, moving to Japan with him and uh, kind of giving up my world for his. Um, and, um, you know, the book is about all the kind of challenges, but also the sort of unexpected joys and sense of rootedness that come with that. So you go over there. You are prepared, but not prepared for this, obviously. This is like, uh, were you by yourself? I mean, was this, were you, did you go there as an individual? Did you, I mean, were you on your own? No, no, I went over. The university had a, a three-month program in Asia, and then the students came back and, to finish their MBAs in Boston. So I was over there with the, with the university. Um, I should say that I, you know, as working as a conversation coach, I was not giving the students grades. I was not in any kind of position of real authority over them, and they were all, you know, my age or older. So it was, you know, strictly speaking, it was kosher. It wasn't probably, you know, wasn't what the university had in mind, but, um, you know, it, was, it wasn't quite like a regular scenario with a professor having an affair with a student, but I did, he was a student on the program where I was working, and I was with the university. Um, I quit the program right when I got back to Boston. Um, what attracted you to so, but, uh, You know, it, what, what was the, I mean, here you are in a, you know, I've been to Japan like many 
thousands of years ago. So I know things have changed, and obviously uh, Japan is more similar now than it was when I was there. But, I mean, here you are in this very strange place, as you describe. I mean, the culture's different, the food's different, uh, you can barely speak to each other. What was the attraction? You know, people have asked me that, and I can't really give a neatly packaged answer to that, unfortunately. I don't, I can't even, I can't say specifically why the attraction happened. I do know that Toru, my husband now, is an incredibly calm person and uh, just a very different person than anyone I had sort of ever known or met before. And I think mostly it was that calmness that I was drawn to. I could, you know, very, very quickly after meeting him, he had sort of a, a repose and a calm that really, really drew me in. And then the more I time I spent with him, Against again against all expectation, I actually found a kind of really unexpected and interesting uh, ease and intimacy with somebody who wasn't fluent in my language and whose whose language I didn't know at all. Um, it sort of you know bypassed a lot of the kind of intellectual sort of wrangling that I think sometimes goes on between you know you know particularly between you know I had always dated these sort of other academics or you know highly successful lawyers or doctors or scientists or whatever and and there was something sort of very sort of calm and simple and and relieving about you know sort of just operating on a on a simpler level with someone so very different i mean very as you described calm um, did, did the calmness come just from his personality or from the culture? Uh, you know that you know because you just you know you had dated men in the United States, doctors, lawyers, those kinds of people. But I, I'm assuming more intense, more frenetic, not in the same. Didn't experience that calmness as you did with him. Um, what about his family? Yeah, I think what you, all of what you said. I think his his calmness comes partly from his personality and would probably be part of him no matter what culture he grew up in. And I'll, but a big part of it's also the Japanese culture is, you know, it's a very it's a culture that values harmony. Um, it's there's a lot less overt conflict in Japan when you go there. Um, everything's kind of below the surface. So I think partly also his cultural training um, sort of helped to reinforce his natural calmness. And his family is also much more low-key and much calmer than my family. I mean, my family is wonderful in its own way, but it's a very kind of northeastern, you know, neurotic, you know, the, you know, crazy upper-middle-class Jewish family. And he is just totally different. And and for me, it was, you know, his family is much more modest, both economically and in psychologically, personally. And there's something just very sort of calming for me about that. And uh, I think I write, uh, I, I can't remember exactly how I say it, but I write somewhere in the book that it has been like I was, you know, internally I had always been sort of spinning on a gear a little bit too high and had never even really noticed it. And then with Toru, somehow something inside me sort of recalibrated and kind of calmed down. And I won't say that I'm nearly as calm as he is. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever reach that point. But I certainly am calmer than I used to be. And I certainly never thought, if you had asked me 12 years ago, is one of the things you want in a mate calmness, I would not have said yes. Um, well, so but, you, would you say I'm opposites attract? I mean, I mean, obviously, in this case, culturally, religiously, and I want to ask you about his religion because you're upper middle class Jewish family from Boston, very uh, different than obviously in Japan. But so you've got all these differences. Is it uh, the forbidden fruit? Um, do you think it's any you know yeah. something? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sure some of it is the forbidden fruit, or, or even more than that. You know, there's a way in which being with Toru, particularly in Japan, but I also felt this in America. He lived here, as I said, for nine months when he was doing finishing his MBA. There's a way in which he sort of takes me outside myself. And, um, you know, I hopefully my friends would say I can, I can be fun, but it's also <laughs> pretty nice to be outside myself some of the time. So, uh, you know, he takes me outside of my, of my own head. He... Um, he just sort of, you know, sort of opens up a different way of thinking and living and being than I think I would have had access to had I not known and met him and had him in my life. And, um, again, it's not something I ever knew that I wanted or needed, and yet um, 
it's where I ended up, and I realize in some ways it fits me better than anything I could have sort of crafted for myself. Well, you know how they say sometimes the differences are very appealing in the beginning, you know, all these differences yeah. that you described. But then, in the end, but then, uh, you know, you often hear from parents or people who are, I mean, I, I guess I think your book is really timely because I know so many young people who just by the nature of that they travel a lot and they have opportunities to meet people from, ever, from all over the world are getting married. So, and... Um, and I, I've actually been to three or four weddings um, that are similar, say, to yours in terms of the differences in the couples. So I think it's really – and, you know, the, there's often disapproval from parents, for instance, because they say, well, yeah, you know, you're attracted to each other now because it's new and it's different. And uh, But, you know, once you get married and you're in kind of the mundane marital stuff, all those differences suddenly become ugly enemies. So, um, But that's not true in your case, only. Talk about that. Well, yeah, it's not true in my case, and I am very lucky, and I don't um, discount that. I mean, I will say, I will admit that uh, from what I read statistically, um, uh, there's a quite a high divorce rate, uh, particularly. I mean, I know mostly I know about multicultural marriages in Japan, and there is a, a higher divorce rate even than I believe in just for um, American couples marrying. Within their own culture, um, there's a higher divorce rate among uh, people, Jap- you know, mixed Japanese slash foreign marriages, if you'll put it that way. Um, so I know that we're really lucky in that, you know, I still am madly in love with him, you know, 11 years after I met him. Um, I think one thing that is true in our case that maybe isn't true in everybody's case is that we're really, really different on the surface and our styles of being in the world are really different. but. There are a couple of ways in which we're really, really similar, and the things we need and value are really, really similar. We have very similar needs around uh, family life, around, I mean, he is the most important person in the world to me, and I'm the most important person in the world to him. And now we have a baby, and so she's within that as well. Um, and that's, you know, we both sort of really wanted and needed that. And um, that, you know, so that's a similarity that I think bridges um, or smooths over a lot of the kind of surface differences. Um, oh, family so, values. Let's talk about, you said family values, and we hear that word all the time, family values, family values. So you're saying the family values are the same. Uh, are your parents living, his parents living? I mean, they're all part of the, the uh, larger nuclear family, and are, uh, is, do they? Are, yeah. yeah. His, his parents are no longer living. His mother died right after I met him. Uh, she was killed in a terrible accident. And is uh, you know, and that's one of the reasons why um, I originally, when we first met, I thought maybe he would move to Boston and I could sort of fit him into this perfect life that I had built. And then his mother is killed in an awful accident, and he's the, he's what's known in Japan as Shonan, the uh, oldest son who inherits the responsibility to take care of the parents as they age, or if one parent is widowed. Um, and so I realized um, quite quickly that he was going to go back to Japan and take care of his father, and that if we were going to be together, I was going to have to go back to Japan and kind of give up my life in Boston. Um, I absolutely adore his father. Um, we lived, we didn't live with his father. We lived right near his father. His, you know, I would cook dinner for him and his father, you know, three or four times a week. His father would come over. It was just very kind of family-oriented life, and, and that is not something I ever thought I would have or, or even knew that I wanted, frankly. I mean, my, my family, my parents, like many you know, American families, my parents are divorced, and I never, I, I was very adamant that I did not want to build a kind of nuclear family like theirs or repeat what I, you know, when I was younger said was their mistakes. And um, But I ended up in this kind of family that had, in some ways you could say, really traditional family values. Um, and I realized that that was really, really meaningful to me. Um, his father has since died. Um, we just lost his father um, a little over a year ago. Um, and um, uh, my family is living, my parents are living, and my family has, you know, uh, I mean, it was a hard adjustment for them to have me in Japan and to see me in this life very different from what I had always planned and from what I had always valued. But they have been very gracious and very welcoming of him into our family. He hardly ever comes to America, though, so in many ways we sort of aren't living 
at this point, we're kind of just living on our own outside of Tokyo. We're near his sister. Um, we spend time with his sister. But other than that, we don't have a lot of extended family. But our nuclear family is very important to both of us. And um, I so think it's a little bit different than if someone got married and then they were living, let's say, if, in the United States having to deal with their, say in your case, your upper-middle-class Jewish family and your uh, husband uh, and your multi cultural uh, marriage, um, that presents a whole different set of issues, which you don't have necessarily, or you don't, because you're, you're living in Japan, and he seldom comes over here. Right. I mean, in many ways, as I, as I write about in the book, my, I sort of had to give up my world for his, and my life, in many ways, has become immersed in his world and his life, just simply by the nature of Japan being so very far away and so very foreign. Um, and um, I, I never thought I would do that. I never thought I would give up my world and my life and much of my career for a man. Um, and yet I did. And yet, even more, to my great surprise, I found a stronger sense of kind of self and home and rootedness and love than I ever thought I would find. And, and you know, it, and that's both a gift and a struggle. It's still, I still wake up some mornings and think, oh, good Lord, what have I done? Who, who am I? Who have I become? And yet I know that I'm happier and more fulfilled um, and have a greater sense of rootedness than I ever did before. And I know that I can't discount that as, you know, as I said, it's, it's really a gift and I need to, and I always remember that and I always really do feel grateful for that. What would you say, Tracy, is the biggest struggle that you have when you're living in your, the suburb of, where, did you say uh, Tokyo? Yeah. Um, yeah, the book takes place in Osaka, but we just have moved since I, since the, I finished the book, we just moved to a suburb outside of Tokyo. And so, it could be Tokyo or Osaka, but I was just wondering, like, what's the big, on a day-to-day basis? I mean, there you are, an American in, in Japan, and uh, uh, you just, you know, with a baby, with a, two, a two-year-old? Yes, she's one year and, and four months. All right, so here you are, mom, baby, um, yeah. multicultural baby. What You know, what, what's the reaction from your neighbors, from your, you know, core group of people that you associate with? Um, any prejudices? Um, just describe some of it, you know, like the daily life that you that you have there or the stuff that you have to, to contend with. Yeah. But, well, the struggles that I have now, now that our daughter um, has been born, are not that different in some ways from the struggles I had when I was writing the book and when we lived in Osaka, um, in that, um, you know, I, I still don't really speak the language. I mean, I can function on a basic level. I can shop. I can eat out, I can ask directions, um, but I can't really have a conversation with someone. It's an extremely complex language, um, and um, I took five semesters of Japanese, and I still, you know, as I said, I can function, but I cannot converse. I cannot be, uh, you know, I cannot have a complex conversation with somebody. Um, and so on a, on a daily basis, there's just a basic fundamental challenge of, of kind of being limited in how much I can do. Um, and with a child, that in some ways that compounds that. Certainly it adds a level of stress to that in that, you know, I, now I'm not just responsible for myself, but I'm responsible for a child um, and, you know, needing to function for both of us. Um, I would assume then your daughter, her first language is going to be Japanese. Is it not where her dad speaks Japanese and so does the outside Yeah, culture? my husband speaks only Japanese to her. I speak only English. So right now the only thing she says is no. <laughs> <laughs> She's so, a smart girl, yeah. Eventually we, she, she, uh, she, she will be bilingual eventually. She'll probably start to speak a little bit late because they say bilingual babies tend to come to language a little bit late because they're processing two different languages at once. And Japanese and English are so different. Um, so, but yes, she will be bilingual. Well, okay, what about child rearing practices? Are they different? Do you? Uh, they mean, are different. I just cannot stop marveling over Japanese mothers and how much they do, and how I just don't even know how they function and how they get everything done. It's a it's a culture that has basically very little. There's no such thing hardly as a babysitter in Japan. Um, Mothers basically do it all. They and there's no such thing as a as a housekeeper in Japan. Really, the, Japan is is a very kind of black and white culture. There's inside and there's outside, and 
that's a huge way in which the culture operates is uh, on these boundaries. And one of the kind of inside concepts is there's the family, there's the private life, and then there's the outside, the public. And the idea of bringing someone into your home who's not family is very, very rare in Japan. So, um, so uh, just in terms of child rearing, there's you know there's much less sort of help from external forces um, or support. Uh, most, I mean, there's, but there is also a very strong family structure. We don't have access to that because my uh, husband's parents are no longer alive. But I think one way that Japanese mothers cope with it is that their mothers or their mothers-in-law are usually around to help. Um, so, but they really do an, an awful lot there with very little support. Now, we, we actually um, uh, are, they, Japan has an excellent daycare system. And um, so our daughter goes to daycare a couple of days a week, and then we also have um, a friend of the family who helps out and babysits, um, which is, as I said, unusual there, but not so unusual for expats. Um, so what about so, women friends? What about friends for you? I mean, there isn't a lot of, as you said, not a lot of family, or he, you, know, you don't have a lot of family or close family. So your network, who, who are your supports outside of your husband, like women friends? My, I have some really close expat friends. Um, mostly American, some British and Australian. Um, and actually, the area we, we just moved to in Tokyo has a fairly large uh, German, po- well, not large German, but not large, but for Japan, large. I mean, Japan's not a very multicultural place at all. But, um, but compared to most parts of Japan, it has a higher number of German people than other areas. There's a German company and a, a kind of famous German school there. So, um, I have some expat friends, and I do have some kind of, you know, mama friends that I met at, who are Japanese, who I met at, like, the mom and baby yoga and at the mall play space and stuff like that. But they're, you know, I, I, we can communicate on a very, very basic level. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not people that I would call to talk to or that if I had it needed help, I would sort of call and, and get support from. But I have my expat friends. Um, and I have my friends in Boston. You know, Skype makes it so much easier. Um, the Internet makes it so much easier. I just don't know how people did this before, the Internet and Skype and frequent flyer miles. <laughs> yeah. that, oh, that was my next question, Skype. Yes, you can always Skype your friends and, you know, from yeah. anywhere. So that, that does make a huge difference. How often do you get back here to the United States or back to Boston or you go back and forth? I mean, when I first met Toru and, I mean, we basically were a couple right away. We you know, we fell in love right away. And when I, when he first went back to Japan, let's say, and we were first separated, I lived half the year in Boston and half the year in Japan. I was incredibly fortunate that I was teaching at a university. I could teach once a year and then I, uh, one semester a year, and then I could work as a freelance writer. So I had this great privilege of having my career be portable. And it was so hard for me to wrap my mind around Japan and that I was going to be living in Japan and marrying a, a man based in Japan that I couldn't even stay there full time. So I would come go back and forth as I said, thank God for frequent flyer miles. Um, and um, then uh, we, uh, we married right before I turned 40, and we spent a, uh, uh, about over, a little over four years with me trying to get pregnant um, and going through a lot of medical procedures and pregnancy losses and things in Japan, which is a small part of the book, but in the book, um, the kind of culture shock around that. And... Um, at that point, I had to give up coming back to Boston because the treatments were so intense and I couldn't travel when I was pregnant. Or, um, and um, so then I really started living full-time in Japan, I would say, about six years ago. So what kind, um, Tracy, what kind of advice would, what, what kind of advice would you give? We have a few minutes left. What would you give to someone who maybe was con- contemplating doing the same thing that you have done? Um, you have a... You have a special kind of a circumstance because, as you say, I mean, you are a writer, so that gives you a lot yeah. of freedom and flexibility. And you also got married at 40, so you are a, a mature woman. You weren't getting married yeah. at 25. So, there, I mean, I think those two things uh, sort of, to me anyway, would help affect a positive outcome to your marriage besides being madly in love. But um, So I don't want to answer the question, but, like, what would you advise to someone sort of deciding to, to do this, um, not necessarily Japan. It could be anywhere around the world. Non-speaking, I think probably a non-speaking English um, country, not necessarily Australia or, uh, you know, yeah. Great Britain, because I think that's much easier. Yeah. I guess, uh, I don't know. I, don't, I certainly don't feel like I'm any kind of expert on love, so I don't wanna <laughs> want to present myself as such. But I think, I guess the advice I would give I guess it's twofold, and this is really for anybody 
regardless of sort of what kind of partnership you're in or even if you're thinking of being in a partnership, but that, you know, don't, I guess what I learned was I, I don't, you don't always need to resist something cause, just because it doesn't fit into your, into your plan. Um, for a long time, I anguished over the fact that Japan just was not, never in my plan, and this was not my life that I had planned out, and so it must be wrong. And I realized, you know, it's very hard and painful sometimes that life throws wrenches in your plans, but sometimes there can be real gifts in that, and you can end up in a, in a kind of more rooted place than you ever would have been had you sort of gotten your way. And I guess I would, I don't know if I would advise, but I would sort of want to share that that's at least something that I learned, that sometimes it's okay to kind of give up your plan, even though that, that can be really scary. Um, and then for the non-native or for the mixed lingual couple or whatever, I mean, for me, I actually love being in a marriage with someone who doesn't, isn't necessarily fluent in my language and who is from a very different culture. I mean, for me, it's endlessly fascinating. And one thing I learned about this whole unexpected life that I ended up in is that sometimes it's more important uh, to be in a life that's meaningful and fascinating um, and joyful in its own way than to be in a life that's sort of simple and easy and happy. And I would have never, I'm certainly not unhappy now, but it's certainly not as easy as it would have been had I stayed in Boston in many ways. And, and um, you know, again, there's some real kind of unexpected wonder and joy in having a life where you're sort of always learning. And maybe you're always challenged, but you're also sort of always have this sense of wonder um, and meaning. That, that, that's well said, Get, it, and it sounds great as you're describing it, exciting, challenging, no, um, the opposite of what you plan for, maybe just the mundane, everyday life that you're <laughs> striving to get out, out of after a couple of years, but great story. Uh, am I pronouncing your name, the Shufu, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Shufu. Okay, because yes. uh, the good Shufu, Finding Love, Self, and Home on the Far Side of the World, Tracy Slater, uh, great book. Tracy, how, give us a website uh, that we can go to. Yes, to, but, yeah. tracyslater.com. T-R-A-C-Y-S-L-A-T-E-R.com is my website. Great. Great talking to you this morning. Thanks so much for telling your story. Thanks, Catherine. I appreciate it. It was great to be with you. Great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author and educator Steve Mariotti, author of An Entrepreneur's Manifesto. Uh, he has, Steve has, uh, well, in, eight, in 1892, I hope it wasn't 1892, in 1982, Steve <laughs> left a successful business career to become a special ed teacher in tough New York City public schools. Frustrated by his rowdy classrooms, Mariotti, Steve, discovered he could motivate his most challenging students by teaching them how to run a small business. And this was the inspiration for the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, or for short, NFTE, bringing entrepreneurship education to low-income youth, empowering them to create pathways out of poverty. Um, He's written for the Huffington Post and has been profiled on ABC uh, Evening News 2020, MSNBC, and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show, Steve. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you've been doing this for a long time, 1982, empowering these young people living in poverty, low-income youth, uh, how to run small businesses, and you've had great success in terms of, of I guess, getting them out of poverty and uh, teaching them how to be self-sufficient. Um, talk to us about that. Obviously, that's what this is all about, the Entrepreneur's Manifesto. How did you? How do you do this? I mean, it seems to me, I you know, I haven't, I don't hear about your program all the time. All I hear about is we have all of these disenfranchised youth, drugs, uh, kids who are in the inner cities, addiction, et cetera, and what can we do about it? Well, it seems to me you have found something to do about it. Wow, thank you. Um, yes, I think so. I started in 82. I had gotten mugged in 81 in New York City. And um, that um, I had, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. This is, you know, 34 years ago. But I went to a guy named Albert Ellis that some of your uh, listeners may um, remember. He uh, was a famous psychologist in New York City who developed um, ways to um, uh, change your sentence structure. And so I went to see him. I went once. And... uh, he said, well, write down the sentences that are painful to you from this experience. So I wrote down, um, you know, I feel humiliated that I got mugged and wasn't able to um, defend myself. This, again, is in Mar- um, September of 81. And he, and he just looked at me and said, okay, go change the sentence to make yourself a hero. And I said, well, I am a hero for... Um, staying alive during a bad mugging. And we looked at it and said, great, now just say that to yourself, you know, five times a day when you get up. And and then he said, I want you to do something else. And he said, go to teach for a month um, in uh, a school or, you know, boys and girls clubs or what have you, where you'll have direct contact with um uh, low-income children. So I did that. Uh, I started March 6th, 1982, and um, I was there a month, and, you know, I never looked back. I just stuck with it. I loved it. And, and So, in other words, having gone to Albert Ellison, yes, as a social worker, I have heard of him. Actually, I also, I think I took a class for him many, many years ago. So you had suffered from P.S. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from getting mugged. And then his cure for that or his way of helping you to accept yourself was to send you kind of right back into the pits, right, and help these other youth who maybe have suffered similar um, similar kinds of assaults as you did. That's exactly right. You, you captured it there. And um, uh, so... Uh, what turned into a exercise to help me change my thinking so I could, you know, become happier, uh, turned into a lifetime career. So it was a multiple blessing. And thanks for knowing who Albert Ellis was. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was really a genius, and his work is not as well known today as it was in the 80s. The Guide to Rational Living, and he wrote some classics. And um, so yeah, he, 
he is a classic therapist. I mean, he is. And I think a lot of people have taken, you know, sort of gone, his, some of his theories have evolved with other therapists or other, you know, social scientists. So you went to the best, but, and obviously you had a good um, outcome as well. But what about, okay, so Steve, you're there, you're with these low-income youth, um, how did this entrep- I mean, you had been a business person, an entrepreneur yourself. So, how did it? You know, how did you see this fitting into their lifestyle and, and what was happening with these these kids who are living in poverty? Well, I started off um, doing the regular school curriculum, and um, for me, it was a disaster. Um, and it was about uh, April of '82. Uh, and I was in a classroom that was supposed to have 12 kids. It was a special ed classroom. But due to a scheduling problem, which goes used to go on all the time. I don't know if it does anymore. But they had 56 kids in the room, uh, including eight kids that had, had been just got out of Rikers Island. The, there's a high school there for children. And they had brought them uh, there. That was like back then, the orders, you'd have to take them to a school when they got out. And, you know, they were exhausted and they were, you know, just uh, one of they them. They weren't there to learn. That's it, right? So the class was like horrible and I could barely stand it. And I walked out in the hall and it was it was really a spiritual moment. I mean, I said, I can't stand this. How do I get out of it? And somehow I looked down and I had a, a watch on and just instinctively I took it off, walked back in the class. You could barely hear anything. I mean, it was like every teacher's been there uh, who's been in this type of environment and the noise was so loud you could hear it all the way down the hall. It was embarrassing. And I said, "Um, how much would you pay for this? And I held up the watch and it was like a miracle. The whole class went stone cold silent. And then kids started raising their hand or yelling out what they'd pay for it. And um, and then the next question I asked was, where would you get it? And now one kid in the class, we had a great conversation, knew about wholesalers. And that, that second question really made my career uh, because I started to write then and to, um, you know, this is my 35th book and all the others were like books for, uh, young people under 23. And, you know, I've done that. Um, you know, I had the bestseller in community colleges, bestseller in four year, uh, number five in graduate school. And then both the high school and junior high textbooks that I, wrote over the past 33 years, I had an advantage. I'm, but there's a know. big difference in this one that you're saying. This is like a whole Thank new... You. Yeah, because it makes it real, it sounds like. These kids needed you to make the learning real, to put it into real life, I guess. Because that's, that's what they were living. If you come from Rikers Island and you're trying to teach, as I'm you know, listening to your story and you in the classroom, I, and if I've just come from Rikers, I'm thinking, well, what is this? You know, I'm listening to all this book stuff. This doesn't make sense in my world. But you made it their world. I mean, this is like, okay, this is the real world. You know, and probably many of them had been stealing watches, but not necessarily knowing how to get them legitimately. Um, So, okay, that was... You understand that the way you articulated it is, um, uh, you know, perfectly accurate. And I build a career on that insight that if you can teach math, reading, writing, by hooking it to the self-interest part of the brain, which we all have, which is a very healthy part of the brain, and and uh, it's monetary-based uh, almost always, particularly with people in poverty. And if you can find that part of the, you know, subconscious, conscious mind that is focused on economic self-interest, which is you know, an incredible motivator. It's a positive thing. And you can hook it to uh, lesson plans and strategies to teach math, reading, and writing. Um, You can raise people's reading levels, writing levels, and math levels like four or five year 
years in, in you know, a month. I mean, it's really a powerful, powerful insight. And, yeah, well, and it has to be powerful. Life. You've got over, as I have these statistics in front of me, over 600,000 young people have graduated from your programs in 22 countries all over the world. And, you know, middle-class parents and upper-middle-class parents do this all the time with their kids, so they go to school having had those opportunities from the time they were two or three years old almost, kind of just intuitively or instinctively. So now you're bringing this to, to these kids, these these low-income kids. So how did you get the pro... So give us examples, like, all right, that was the beginning, that was the aha moment when all of this happened with, with the watch. So, uh, you know, just in terms of, because this is such a far-reaching program, give us some examples of these young people being taken out of poverty, um, feeling good about themselves, making money. What kind of businesses do they do when you talk about these um, entre- learning how to run a small business or entrepreneurship? Examples. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Rodney Walker. Uh, I hope he's listening. And... Um, Rodney in high school was homeless for uh, four and a half months, which is torture. Uh, you know, anybody who's been homeless, it's just uh, it, it's just a terrible uh, situation. And um, bless uh, the teacher's heart, but she got him involved in our program in Chicago, and he did really well with the video um, filming business of. Uh, of buildings in his neighborhood, and that got him, you know, back into school, and then it got him a, a four-year scholarship to Morehouse uh, down in Atlanta, which is, you know, one of the great schools in the world, and and um, he was elected student body president in his sophomore year, and, and now he's at um, Yale getting an MBA, he got his MBA, and he's got... Um, uh, one more year for his divinity uh, degree. So uh, the whole situation of allowing people or encouraging people to have an entrepreneurial mind and to find their comparative advantage uh, is universal. And I was very proud recently, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, uh we were invited to Cambodia, and my secretary and I went to Cambodia, and then we went to Saigon, and then Hanoi. And when I got back, we did video conferences with the young entrepreneurs of Hanoi. Um, and the whole system of communism is collapsing and is being replaced by a belief in small business, democracy. I mean, we have a potential of this century of just totally eliminating, uh, you know, the concept of, of totalitarianism and eliminating poverty as we know it. And How did I'm you really... work within the system? I'm, I'm curious, Steve, because my I got, was in Cambodia and Hanoi and Saigon in January of this year, and it all seemed... There seem to be, well, you know, you have the big cities, Hanoi and Saigon, obviously, and they operate as big cities. So uh, Cambodia seemed very different. We were in Siem Reap, for example. Um, you know, the differences between those who have and those who have nothing is so extremely wide. I mean, that how do you, I mean, are you dealing with those, you know, the people who literally live on the streets almost, you know, no electricity, no hot water, 10 people living in a shack, that kind of thing. Are those the kinds of kids that you're able to, to, to work with? Um, very good question. And I, to be honest with you, I don't know, particularly in Cambodia. Um, I was only there eight days and I, I, you know, went all over, and the people that, you know, I met were all the uh, entrepreneurs. So I, I wasn't in contact, unfortunately, and I asked to be, but I, you know, scheduling, and it was a, a State Department-sponsored uh, uh, trip. But what was so fascinating to me about Cambodia, um, by accident, we drove through Samalt, S-A-M-L-A-U-T, and it's a region, but we 
actually went to the village and where the uh, you know the revo- revolution started that led to the horrors of the killing fields in the Khmer Rouge, mm-hmm. and it started actually in '67. I I was I met these older people, and I was saying, well, where did the uh, this all the horrors of this start? And universally, they said it was a tax revolt. In other words, they started off as a libertarian type community, and then they, um, the government came in and said, we're going to take half of the property to pay your tax bills. So the whole village, and men and women, went into the um, uh, forest, and then their leadership got murdered by, you know, uh, Pol Pot and, the, you know, the 10 communist uh, uh, leaders that had studied the Manifesto of Equals, which is, you know, I wrote about it on Huffington Post um, called The Tax Holocaust in Cambodia. Okay. And I tracked down, I said, where did this come from? And in Cambodia, it was one document that was written in 1793 that was tragically uh, uh, translated by Pol Pot when he was a student, his real name Sars, uh, at the University of Paris in 1956, uh, I believe. And that document, Manifesto of Equals, is, I never read a more disturbing, corrupt document than that. It basically argues you can um, kill anyone who's taller than you, has better eyesight, has more money. It, it legalized uh, murder based on inequality. And it was used by the Jacobins. If I mispronounce that, I apologize. But during the French Revolution, basically to commit mass murder. They would hold that document up. But that's what the Cambodian leadership found in France in the 50s, took it back to Cambodia, which so then So given was, that background, I mean, because we don't have that much time, but, you know, oh, and you sorry. presented, yeah, but that, that's a, uh, I guess, a good description of the background. How do you take these, like just getting back to the practical, how do you take these kids uh, in those kinds of countries? And, and maybe... I mean, because I also understand that you want to do the same thing in the West Bank. Um, I mean, I mean, it's one thing it would seem to me when you're doing it, uh, a program teaching entrepreneurship to the disenfranchised in, well, you've, in, in Belgium or Ireland or, you know, United Kingdom or the United States. But then when you, tra- how does that, tra- or New Zealand, okay, because these are the places you do it in, but how does that translate into countries like, more restrictive countries like you're describing in Cambodia or the West Bank or those kinds of, even South Africa. I mean, like, it's, is it in that different, do you have to take a different approach? I mean, you just can't actually, go into the school. It's a, yeah. um, actually, it's a huge advantage. Um, you know, the power of the Internet, uh, we have a, a very successful program on the West Bank as an example in Hebron. And you basically need one or two really uh, good teachers, which you now can find on the Internet. And Iyad, and I can't pronounce his last name, but he's like uh, a genius. And they connected with our our program in Israel, which is a big deal. Uh, We're the official program of the uh, JDC, which is the, you know, Israeli um, uh, public health program. And then in Vietnam, you know, we're booming, and all through the Internet. Um, I, I don't know about Cambodia as much as I should uh, as far as what's going on there. I met with a professor in uh, uh, Phnom Penh University, and he was, you know, he had all these college kids that were competing for his, in his business fund competition. And... Um, we're, you know, the idea is all over China now. In fact, in China, they're training their prison prison guards in the um, uh, curriculum of Nifty. And um, uh, my my high school books there are like a big deal. Like there's, um, they don't pay royalties, but I forget forgiven them for that. But it's uh, it's something like five six million in print. 
And, so what you're um, saying is, Steve, the timing seems to be right because the rest of the world wants to get in on all this entrepreneurship and make you know and have the opportunities to to make money and to be independent and to obviously have the the, the young people be a part of that. Is that what you're saying? Especially in these, I don't know, some of them are emerging countries. Some of them are already there, but they have a different kind of a, a, a political philosophy than we do. But it it's so. Um, it's it's interesting because I would have thought the opposite would be true, but as you're describing it, like that everybody's kind of just ready to get on board. Is that what you're saying? That's it. There's yeah. nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, and it's a huge blessing. And I think it came out of the internet. That when I was in Vietnam, I met with the leadership of the Communist Party there, and I said, "How." I, I said, this is the reading Hayek, uh, Friedman, von Mises. Uh, their tax code is, I don't know, a thousand times better than ours. They have a flat tax like Steve Forbes has advocated in Vietnam. The tax forms that you fill out take about 10 minutes. I said, where did you learn all this? I said, oh, you know, we've been on the Internet and... Uh, it's like, you know, just, we just started to see the potentials of it. Yeah, but, so we uh, only have, you know, I hate to interrupt you because we only have like about a minute left, so I kind of want to make sure, I mean, the it, it's just, the whole concept is fascinating, so really, you talk about the Internet, where can, uh, can we go on the Internet to obviously learn more about uh, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and, and I want to give NFTE. Steve Mariotti and his uh, his work is an entrepreneur's manifesto. So just give us the, the websites that we can go to to follow you and your work and your writings because you write for the Huffington Post. Wow, thank you. I I, I would start at www. Mariotti and that's one R and two T's and an I. So it's like the Marriott Hotel, but yep. uh, with an I. dot com, and from there, you know. In an hour, your readership can find pretty much everything. And thank you for having me on. And I hope everyone will buy and write reviews of the Entrepreneur and Entrepreneur's Manifesto. Great. Thanks so much for being on, this, on the show this morning, Steve. Um, we are going to say goodbye. And uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.